Welcome to the Restore Church Sermons podcast. We're so glad you joined us here today. We hope that through this message, you are encouraged, challenged, and strengthened. If you want to know more about Jesus, Restore Church, or have any questions, please head to restorechurch.com.au. Let me, let me share with you a little travel story to set the scene. I mean, there's no point going overseas if you don't get to tell your travel stories every now and then yet, right? I mean, that's the whole point, is the bragging rights when you get home. Um, but Heather and I, almost a year ago now, Heather and I were in, um, in Rome, and um, we decided to, as we would do most evenings while we were there, we would walk down around about 6pm for the, uh, the mandatory aperitivo, which is a little tradition of having a drink and just a few nibblings around 6 o'clock and just sitting there in a piazza uh, and just watch the world go by. And so we were sitting there sort of blissing out and sort of pinching ourselves going, like, we're in Rome, like you and me, we're in Rome, you know. And cutting through the bliss was this noise of a woman walking into the restaurant we were sitting in saying... There's no hello, there's no sort of buonasera or anything like that. There's just, we had a reservation for 6.30, but it's okay, we're here now. Can I have a, can I have a menu? Right? And we're like, boom. <laughs> a, because it's 6.30, lady. No one eats dinner at 6.30 in Italy. You don't need to make a reservation. You can turn up anywhere until about 8 or 9 o'clock and not worry about it, okay? But then secondly, she's sitting right next to us. She's got the menu. And she says out loud, it's all so Italian. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, once I got over the, like, you're shocked by this, um, I just thought to myself, why travel this big, beautiful, wide world if you just want to stay at home? Why bother doing that type of thing? You're going to miss out on so much good stuff. I mean, have you tried authentic Italian food? I was 50 kilos when I left. I had to to pay extra luggage to get on the plane. All right? That's how good this stuff actually is. And I was so tempted to just say, lady, just try a pasta. Just try something. You know, go wild. Knock yourself out. Live like it's your last day. Try something you've never tried before. And I mean, I get it, right? There's a payoff for us when we stick with what is familiar, yeah? There is a payoff. It's safe. We know what the food tastes like. We know how it all works. But there's a trade-off as well. And the trade-off is that if you don't eventually go into new things and try new things and step out of your comfort zone, and the familiar things, you're also going to miss out on potentially stuff that leaves the stuff you know in the dust, yeah? You're going to miss out on so much good stuff. And I want to just say there's, there's a kind of parallel for that in us in terms of our life in the kingdom. The kingdom of God, this world that Jesus has inaugurated and is currently still creating, you've heard me say, I believe it is so much bigger and so much better than we've ever been led to imagine. But you and I are born, if you like, into a particular segment of that world. And we grow up in the segment of that world thinking it kind of is the world. 
And it becomes our familiar and it becomes our normal and it becomes our safe place because we know how it all works and again, we know what the food tastes like and we don't want to risk going into something when we know what we've got kind of gets us by. We humans like to settle down. Now, when the pilgrims actually left England and went and settled in America, this, this band of people must have been the most adventurous people ever because they got on these little rickety wooden boats. Have you ever seen the boats that these people travelled oceans in? You know, I mean, they're not even the equivalent of like a manly ferry in my opinion, but they, they get in these things and they cross the Atlantic Ocean to go and start this settlement in the new world. And they did this, these incredibly adventurous people. But two years after settling down there, these same people who got in these matchstick boats to cross the Atlantic impeached their local council for suggesting they build a road that led out of town. Yeah? Such is the human nature to want to just circle the wagons and stay in what we know. You with me? It's what we do. It's our human propensity to do this. But we've got a problem. Because in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, calls his disciples around him and he says, you are going to be my witnesses. First you're going to receive power from the Holy Spirit. Then you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and then to the utmost parts of the earth. And again, because we're familiar with that and we know that, we don't think about the real risk and challenge that that thing actually represented to them. Because the Spirit of God was going to be pushing them out in ever-radiating circles. And in more than just geographical ways, they were going to be crossing all sorts of boundaries that they had never crossed before. And even more, had been told they were boundaries that they were never allowed to cross. And it's the same with us. That same Spirit that empowered them, empowers us to go out in these ever-radiating circles and pushing through these boundaries that we have been told we're not allowed to cross. And the Spirit isn't just directing us to do that. Let's, let's be clear about this. This is coming from God, the Holy Spirit, who is driving this movement. But He is also empowering us to do it, meaning that any reluctance on our part is not really an excuse, is it? The excuse is like, I don't feel comfortable, I can't do it. You can do it because you were empowered by the Spirit to do this, yes? Okay? So any excuse for not being able to go there is taken away from us. A, the Spirit is directing us. B, the Spirit is empowering us to go out in these ever-radiating circles and boundaries. And that is risky in all sorts of ways. But we will miss out on so much and only be useful so far in the kingdom if we aren't prepared to step out of our safe, familiar world. Are you with me? We all have a way of seeing the world. We can't help it. We just do. It's what happens. We grow up in environments and contexts and we're taught and we imbibe all sorts of things. What it means to love, what it means to parent, how to handle your money, your work ethic, what it means to recreate, uh, you know, what it means to navigate life. You, all of these things, we just pick these things up all the way. And that includes our faith as well because, we, as I say, we are born into a particular segment, a particular environment where there is a very particular way of thinking about God and seeing the world and seeing the kingdom and understanding who's in and who's out and how it all works. And... <coughs> Most of that stuff 
we don't come to those conclusions for ourselves. We, we come to those conclusions because someone we trust is telling us those things and we've no reason to doubt it. And so we just grow up thinking that is normal. That's just the way it is. And you've heard my story a little bit. I became a Christian at 19, but I was saved into a very small, very traditional church. And that was my whole reference point for Christianity. And it wasn't until I was 24 that I actually went to another church that was not small and it was not traditional. And you know what my immediate response to that was? This is wrong. This is wrong. How do these wacky people do this and think? I mean, they were happy for a start. <laughs> What's that about? Okay. How do these people think this is what it's about when clearly what we do is what it's all about? It's okay to have a way of seeing things. It only becomes really problematic when we think our way is the way of seeing things and refusing to budge on that. So a little bit of self-awareness is helpful. If you've been around for a while, you may have. I think I've told the story once. Told the story of the infamous Battle of the Cutlery Draw. Bondi Beach. 1988. <laughs> it's in all the history books. <laughs> Heather and I were just married and we'd moved into our unit at Bondi Beach and uh, we were unpacking. And for some reason, I don't know, I was doing the cutlery drawer and I was doing it in the God-ordained biblical <laughs> manner from the book of I'm a Liar. <laughs> I'm a Liar 4.3 which said, Thou shalt put Spoons, forks, knives. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> the faithful remnant. Anyway, I'd no sooner done this and Heather walked in and she goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm putting the cutlery away. Why are you doing it like that? Because that's how you do... No, that's wrong. There's no surer way to get me to dig in on something completely pointless than to tell me it's wrong. I know it doesn't matter. But you just, it's like throwing a red rag in front of a bull to say, and I was like, okay. She goes, no, 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 that's not how you do cutlery. It does, it's the exact opposite way. And I said, well, according to him, it's just everyone knows. <laughs> well, three days that argument went on. If you need marriage counselling, Heather and I are happy to talk to you about how to handle conflict. Um, three days we took that one out. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I went into the men's toilet before to get some toilet paper so I could clean my glasses. Some animal has hung the toilet paper so it's under. I mean, where did you grow up? What sort of person are you? Everyone knows it's over. Oh. Sorry? Amen. Forget articles of faith. You get to be a part of this church, we're going to say, how does toilet paper go? Get out, away from me, Satan. Okay. We all have ways of seeing things, right? And, and that's fine. And that's normal. And you can't help it. But it becomes problematic when we think it is the way and refuse to be self-aware enough to realise there may be other ways of seeing it. 
So there's this story in Acts chapter 10 that I'm just going to, it's a long story, so I'm just going to talk you through it, and it involves Peter. And it's an early stage of the, the early church development. And there's this guy called Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion in the regiment known as the Italian Regiment. So he's a full-on Roman officer in the Roman army. But he's what they call a God-fearer. What, what I mean by that, or what they meant by that in those days, was like he wasn't Jewish, but he actually believed in the God of the Jews. He believed in Yahweh. And he, to, in his own way, he worshipped Yahweh. And it says he prayed regularly and he gave generously to the poor. And then one day he has a bit of a vision. And in this vision, an angel says to him, Cornelius, your prayers and your generosity have come up before God as a memorial offering. Like God is really pleased with you, Cornelius. And again, isn't it really interesting that, that God is more accepting of someone than God's people are accepting of someone. Yeah? So he's, God's, Cornelius has got God's endorsement, but Cornelius doesn't have God's people's endorsement. Strange how that works sometimes. So, at the same time, Peter, good Jewish boy, is hungry and he's he waiting for lunch and he goes up onto the roof and while he's up on the roof he falls into a, a, what, we, what the Bible says is a trance. I don't understand what all that means but this is what it says. And, he, and while he's in this trance he has a vision and in this vision there is a sheep that is lowered from heaven and it's filled with all kinds of animals, unclean animals that a good Jewish boy would never touch. And then the Lord says to him, Peter, I want you to kill the animals and eat them and Peter's like, no way. I'm not going to touch anything that's unclean. I'm not going to touch anything that's unclean. I've never done that. I'm a good boy. Okay? And it happens three times. Until this voice said to him, says to him, don't call anything unclean, Peter, that I have called clean. And then Cornelius's men turn up because they've been sent for Peter. In this vision, God has said to Cornelius, go and get this guy, Peter, who's staying in this house in Joppa. Go and get him and bring him to your house. So they turn up and Peter's had this vision. So he goes, all right, I'll go with you. The reason I find this encouraging is that even though Peter was an apostle, he was still very much human, just like us. And even after being with Jesus for three years and hearing the things that Jesus said and seeing the things that Jesus did, um, he still hasn't quite got it. He's still stuck in his own ways of thinking. He's still functioning as a product of his traditional upbringing and way of seeing the world. Um, the, the things that he'd been taught in terms of who was in and who was out is that the ethnic boundaries and the religious boundaries that, that world afforded. And in that way of seeing things, again, there were the very clear ins and outs. There were the Jews and then there were the Gentiles. And even when he is at Cornelius's house, in this story, Peter even actually says to them quite explicitly, you have to understand that for a good Jewish person, that we don't associate with you Gentiles. So the fact that I'm even in your house, and that... This is something that doesn't happen. This is something that we don't do because I end up being unclean because of it. And again, it isn't just that Cornelius is a, a Gentile. He's an officer in the occupying forces. An officer in the forces that are oppressing Peter's people. So there's this kind of a double banger. Like this guy is not just a Gentile, but he's part of this apparatus that's causing us all this pain. And Peter actually goes over to his house. Now here's something that I find really interesting. Peter was amongst that original group in Acts 1.8 that Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and to the utmost parts of the earth. And what we don't hear from any of them at that time is like, really? 
It's almost like there's this, this tacit acceptance of like, yeah, sure, that's going to happen. But the problem was two of those destinations are off limits to them completely. They can go to Jerusalem, that's fine, because it's full of Jews. They can go to Judea, that's fine, it's full of Jews. But to go to Samaria, they're half-breeds and half-castes. And you know that the Jews did not have a high opinion of the Samaritans, yes? Which is why Jesus tells that story of the good Samaritan, because in their mind there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. So they're going to go to Samaria, and then, then they're going to go to the utmost parts of the earth. Well, that's Gentile territory there. These are no-go people. But we don't hear anything for them in terms of, really, we're going to go and do that? Have, have you ever agreed to something without thinking about the implications of the thing you're agreeing to? Yeah? All the time. Yeah. You know, it's like I was talking about last week. Some of the stuff we sing and stay and put on T-shirts and merch and all of this stuff... We say this stuff without really thinking about the implications of what we're saying sometimes, yeah? You know, we say, Jesus is Lord. We say, I'm going to take up my cross. We say, I'm going to lay down my life. But wherever you go, wherever you send me, I'm going to go. And we're like, really? You really mean that? Because I imagine if these guys hadn't been so... I mean, look, I'll, I'll be fair. Jesus wasn't supposed to rise from the dead. He's risen from the dead. He's standing in front of them talking. They're probably thinking, I just agree to anything right now because I don't know what's going on. So if you tell me I'm going to the ends of the earth, sure. Right? Sure. Whatever. They're confused. But we need to be aware that sometimes we're like, yeah, we're really all for this thing. And we haven't actually stopped to think about this thing that we say we're for. Until someone actually says to us, do you realise that it means this? And we go, ah, I'm not sure how I feel about that anymore. Proof that they didn't get it is by chapter 10, where we're at now, represents some chronological time. And these people that had been given this commission to go to the ends of the earth had only just recently left Jerusalem because the persecution had broken out, if you Acts chapter 8. But they were still contained in Judea. They still hadn't bothered going to the Gentiles yet. And it wasn't until Peter gets this revelation that they start to do that. Which tells me it's something he wouldn't have done without being disrupted by God, in this case through the vision. And you know, most of us will not change until we're interrupted or disrupted or given a really good reason to change. Anyone else? I, I was talking to my psychologist on Monday. Don't freak out about that sentence. <laughs> I go regularly because I need to just unpack things. Can I deal with people that are dealing with some big stuff sometimes, right? And I carry that. And, and so I need to go and I need to check my own thinking and I just, it's just healthy. It's, a, it's, a way, it's, it's one of the rare ways I try and look after myself. So I was talking to my psychologist the other day, and I was talking about me having a little turn at, at church. Instantly, thank you. I thought that went really well. Um, but I'd been really sick, and I just pushed myself, and I just—that's just what I do. I just—I don't stop. And I said to him, "What is wrong with me? Like I know the theory. You have to look after yourself, right? And in fact, I tell other people off when they don't look after themselves. You need to look after yourself. You need to stop that." And they're like, mm hmm like, you have no credibility with me in terms of that, you know. I said, so why is it? Why don't I do things that are good for me? And he said, you know what? Most people never change until they absolutely have to. Most people will never change unless they absolutely have to. You know, it's like that thing we joke about, the heart attack is God's way of telling you to slow down. You know, it's that, and, and we, they go, well, it's not funny. Um, it, it's that type of thing. Until something happens, we rarely make the choices we need to do what we need to do. 
until we're forced to the point we actually have to make those things. And these interruptions to disruptions to our normal might just be God's way of getting through to us about something really important. I think about the story of Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. I mean, he was a Pharisee. And you don't just... Just not anyone can be a Pharisee, right? You've got to, you've got to go through so much to become a Pharisee. And his whole life has been dedicated to this. And, and, you know, the first introduction we get to him in the Bible is where he is persecuting the early church, you know. He's giving approval to Stephen's death as he's being stoned to death. And then he's setting out with his entourage to go and round up and arrest these early Christians and bring them back. And again, not just have them imprisoned and tortured, but probably executed as well. And it's in the process of going out to get these people that he encounters the risen Jesus. This massive disruption. And Jesus says to him, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Now Paul's answer to that would have been, you know, initially, because you're wrong. I'm a Pharisee. I know the scriptures. That something happens in that encounter that makes Paul question everything he's always believed and everything he's thought. And one of the things we don't pick up when we read Acts and this story of Paul, because it's hidden away in some other things, from that point on, he doesn't just go and become Paul the Apostle, he goes to Arabia for 14 years to think about what he's just had had done to him. Because he's got a whole lifetime of learning that's telling him, this is how the world looks, this is how it works. And Jesus has turned up and he's had to go back and go, How do I think about that now in light of what I've just seen? I've just seen this Jesus, this one that I know was crucified. He's now resurrected. He's now spoken to me. I have to go back and rethink this. And when you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, he uses a lot of Old Testament, but not in the way he used to use the Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament now in light of what he has seen in Jesus. Because Jesus has reconfigured his understanding of everything that he knew. Are you with me? Okay. Completely reconfigured it. He has to go back and work out which way is up. And if that hadn't happened, I doubt there would have been any change. Now, wouldn't it be nice if our interruptions and disruptions were as overt and obvious as Peter's vision or Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus? Something that we could put beyond dispute and we knew that it was God telling us about it so we wouldn't have to doubt ourselves. Who would like that sort of encounter? Okay, well, I would. It'd be horrifying and terrifying. See, again, you're committing to something you don't understand. But in our case, it, it, it happens a little more in a little more mundane, ordinary way. It might be an experience that makes you reconsider things. Um, I think I've told you. You know, I used to be super gung ho about praying for the sick. Until everyone I prayed for died and I had to bury them. And then I just didn't believe in praying for healing anymore. Now, I've moved a little bit more towards the centre now where I will pray and I do believe that it's possible. But I used to, I was totally gung-ho and that got completely shattered through my experience. And I had to go and rethink my understanding about God and his healing power and, and all the associated issues with that. I used to have some pretty fixed ideas about the poor until I went and worked out at the restore for three years. We can have experiences that make us reconsider things. It might be information. Someone might put a book in your hand. You might listen to a podcast. You might listen to a sermon. Uh, and, and someone says something and you go, oh, okay. I need to go and rethink things. 
But I think the most powerful way is proximity to people. I think that is the way most of us are disrupted and interrupted in the way we think about things. I mean, for example, in the West, we have a very privileged way of thinking about theology and about God. The most overt form of that would be like the prosperity gospel where we say, you know, God rewards faithfulness by blessing you with like material things, a nice house, a nice car, and etc., etc., money, whatever. That's the, and, and that's what you equate faithfulness with. But then you go on a mission trip to a third world country, or you go to a place where Christians are under persecution. They don't have a lot of money, they're not driving around in nice cars, and they've not got big houses and all of that. But are they faithful? I, I would argue that, that they, they could teach us what faithfulness was all about. Okay? So we would have to go away and come back from that, and you could not, come, could not see that and come back from that and still believe that particular doctrine. You couldn't believe that God is just automatically blesses people because it just doesn't happen. They are faithful. They are committed followers of Jesus, but they don't get blessed in the way that we define blessing. Hashtag blessed. Okay? It just doesn't happen. And so we have to reconfigure our ideas about what it means to be faithful and what it means to be blessed. Proximity to a person. You know, what I noticed about this story, when God wants to cement a shift in us, he doesn't deal with the abstract, he deals with the particular. It was Cornelius the person that Peter had to go and talk to. God just didn't give him a lecture on Gentiles in general. You with me? It was like, go and talk to this person, Cornelius, and see how that goes. And you find that in some of the healings of Jesus, where Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and on more than one occasion, when Jesus is having the argument, because remember, I, I've, I've told you this, Jesus doesn't have to heal on the Sabbath. These are not life or death issues. He does it because he's making a point. And he does it in front of the people who say you can't do it to make a point. But sometimes he would stand the person up in the middle. And he would say to the people who were saying to him, you can't heal on the Sabbath, it's forbidden. He would say, well, you tell me, what, what's the better thing to do here? What's a good thing to do here? To heal on the Sabbath or to not heal? And don't, let's just not have some have dry academic argument about the theory in this. Let's talk to this guy. You know, you look at this guy here, let's call him Trevor, okay? You look at Trevor, good Aramaic name, Hebrew name, okay? You know, with the bung hand or the, the crippled legs or whatever, and you tell him God doesn't work on the weekends. Not going to, are you? Because this guy personalises that particular thing. Has anyone ever changed their mind because they know about a thing because of someone they know? Yeah, it happens. I was reading a review of a book <laughs> that I really liked. And then I thought, I'll go and see what the reviews say about this. I could probably guess what they're going to say, but I'll go and see. This book was being torn to shreds by people. He's been absolutely blasted. And the main point of the argument was this. We're not listening to anything he says because... He has not come to this conclusion. He's not changed his thinking because of uh, intellectual thought or rational you know, engagement. He's changed his mind because of his proximity to people who are going through this particular thing. And I thought, and? And? Peter changed his mind because of a vision and a talk with a person. Paul changed his mind because of his encounter with Jesus. I love our brains. I think our brains are great, but they're not all they're cracked up to be sometimes. All right? When we start to think that the only way we're ever going to arrive at the right conclusion is via this and this alone, we're disparaging a good part of how we're wired. 
And sometimes God can't get to us through our brains because we've got like no-go signs up everywhere. We're not in the mood. And so he comes at us through a, a circuitous route and takes us by surprise, doesn't he? He sneaks up on us and we go, oh, I wasn't expecting that. I'm not sure what that is about. But now you've got my attention, maybe I need to think about it. We have to be open to being surprised by Jesus. After, after his crucifixion and after his resurrection, we've got those stories of two apostles, or two disciples, walking down the road of Emmaus. And Jesus ends up walking with them and they don't realise that it's Jesus until he gives them bread and wine, communion, and their eyes are opened. But they didn't know it was Jesus. Paul didn't realise that it was Jesus. The disciples didn't realise that it was Jesus after the resurrection because Peter and John had gone back to fishing. And this guy turns up at the beach and said, how's it going? Well, it's not going very well. Why don't you throw your nets on the other side? They throw their nets on the other side. They bring in this massive haul of fish. John turns around to Peter and he goes, I think that might be Jesus. <laughs> if we're not open to being surprised, and don't forget again, those disciples on the road to Emmaus, Peter and John, you know, we read these stories with the, with the benefit of hindsight, but in their scheme, resurrection was not something they were expecting. They weren't expect this wasn't part of the script for the Messiah. Jesus was crucified. It was end of the story. Resurrection was a whole new twist to this story that they had to then factor into their thinking later. But they were surprised enough to go, wow, I didn't see that coming. It is Jesus. We've got some thinking to do about that. And so while Peter's experience is different to ours, it's the same in a couple of ways. One, it's completely unexpected. I mean, Peter was literally waiting for lunch when he had this vision, when he fell into a trance and had a vision. When was the last time you were waiting for lunch and you fell into a trance and had a vision? Okay. Hopefully, hopefully not where you're driving. Okay. But rarely do we go looking for things to shake up our way of seeing the world. Most of the time, it comes to us when we least expect it and surprises us. God likes to surprise us, most of us like that, but most of us are not open to surprises. Secondly, it's unwanted. Peter didn't like it. He got the implication immediately about what was being said and his response to it was no. No, I'm not doing that. I've never done that. My belief system doesn't allow that. And it, it said that vision had to happen three times for him to go, okay, maybe I need to look into this thing. Maybe I need to see where this is going. But what I really want us to get this morning is that this process of interruption and disruption, it is normal. It happens to us all of the time. None of us think the way about things now that we used to when we were younger. And it doesn't matter what age you are, we will have all changed our minds on a whole range of things, yes? Yeah. Yeah. I used to believe that if you ate cheese before you went to bed, you would have nightmares. I was told and believed that if you ate uncooked pasta, you would get appendicitis. I was told that if you swallowed chewing gum, it would get tangled around your heart. <laughs> you can, you see why I'm in therapy? <laughs> I no longer believe two of those things. <laughs> I 
As I got older, I was aware that I was being told absolute rubbish. But we all change our way of seeing and understanding because we have to. Life, circumstances, our environments, our experiences all throw up challenges to our very fixed and rigid ways of seeing the world. And there's, I, I have spoken about this in the past and you can, maybe if you want to talk about it with me privately you can, but there's a Franciscan priest called Richard Raw who's done some beautiful work on this and he talks about when we go through life it's about just visualising it as three boxes, order, disorder and reorder. And in, in order, that's just the way we grow up seeing the world and understanding how everything works. Like I say, it's normal and it's natural because we all have to have a way of understanding things and navigating and negotiating life. And that functions for us until a point where it actually doesn't work for us anymore. It might be a circumstance, an experience, something comes along that challenges the way we have seen things and suddenly our world starts to come apart a little bit, not in a catastrophic way, but in a way that makes us have to start to rethink things. And right now, um, in the church, there's this big movement going on, it has been for a while, it's called deconstruction. So what, hap what has happened is people have gone, I used to believe X about Christianity, but now I don't believe some of that stuff anymore. And so they're in this box called disorder. But the way some people are handling this is like, because I no longer believe this, I no longer believe anything. And now they're sitting around in coffee shops and they're pulling apart what once was their faith and they're saying, I can't believe I used to believe all of that. You haven't just had some enlightenment occur where now suddenly you've seen the truth and that's all rubbish. You've had what happened to you, what happens to all of us, is that the things that you believe and the way you see things have now been challenged. The responsible thing is to work out how it all fits together and where it goes. So you end up in the third box, which is reorder, which is the beliefs you now hold that may contain residual parts of this, but they are now in a more mature fashion. Are you with me? Yeah. doesn't mean you have to jettison everything. There's no direct flight from order to reorder. We have to go through this middle box of disorder. And sometimes that can feel like, you know, in church we have um, phrases like, backsliding and uh, losing your faith. You're not backsliding and you're not losing your faith if you're rethinking things. You're just rethinking things. That's it. And what it means is your faith is moving from this relatively immature thing to a far more mature way of seeing and understanding things. It's a normal, natural part of the process. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and I'd forgotten about this, when I was doing my Masters, one of the things I studied was about the trajectory that, that someone's spiritual life takes. And there is, this, there is this documented event that occurs in people called the wall. Um, this is another way of understanding. And what happens is you go along, and then you hit the wall, and everything comes apart. But the findings are the people who push through the wall and come out the other side, have a far stronger, mature, resilient faith than people who never push through the wall. So this isn't about going, well, let's just question everything. It's like, no, you're going to question things. Things are going to come up. The Spirit of God moving in us is constantly pushing us out in radiating circles and crossing boundaries never previously crossed before. But the goal of it is that we will come through with an even stronger, more resilient faith. You with me? This isn't about smashing us into the wall just for the fun of it. This is so we come through this going, I used to think that, but now I've got this. And this is far more robust, and this is the thing that's going to take us further. So if anyone wants to talk to me about that later, we, we can.
Okay? But it's just weird that when it comes to our faith and our beliefs, we just get really, really anxious and catchy about this all the stuff. Somehow this stuff should be immune, and somehow this represents a great threat to the purposes of God if we start to question anything, and it doesn't. People have been questioning stuff since the year dot, and the kingdom continues to move on. Amen? All right, so we don't have to worry about that. God is unchanging. The immutability of God is one of the core orthodox, orthodox truths of the church. God is unchanging. But my ideas about God should never be unchanging. Are you telling me that you understand God? Think about what you're saying when you say that. God. Now, we say things like his ways are so much higher than ours. You know, there's God, you know, the ways of God are unfathomable. And then when we say, actually, I think a little bit differently, people look at you in horror. Like, but no, this is what we believe about God. Do you, do you realise what we believe about God is about the equivalent of a grain of sand in the universe? Right? So our ideas about God are of necessity going to have to be growing and changing because he's just so big and there's so much to comprehend. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today and forever. That is true. My beliefs about Jesus and who he is and what he's on about are not unchanging. You with me? They should be changing because I am growing in my understanding of him and the kingdom that he is building. If they just remain static, I'm going to remain with an infantile faith. As I said at the beginning, this kingdom that Jesus is building is bigger and better than we've ever been led to believe. And yes, it all looks so Italian, but... It's better than just eating a hamburger every night, yeah? There is risk involved. You may not like the cacio e pepe. You may not like the linguine. You may not like the guanciale. But it's better than eating hamburger every night. That the choice is ours. We were discussing something at our pop-up group the other night. Something the author said in his book about when he was first challenged in his understanding of the Bible. And he said, it felt like I was in front of three doors. Door number one was I could ignore what I was seeing, which is the preferred option for some people, yes? Nothing to see here, let's just keep going. Secondly, I could reject it and defend my existing position. Thirdly, I could accept what I was seeing, take up the challenge and go with it. And he said, I took the door number three and that has made all the difference. I wouldn't suggest number one is a good option, I think it lacks a bit of intellectual integrity for us just to ignore things that we don't like. I think God has given us a brain. He has given us his book. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us community. We can process things, right? We don't have to just ignore them. But it's fear that causes us to do that. There's nothing to be afraid of, okay? You are not going to fall apart and you are not going to thwart the purposes of God if you have to rethink things, all right? Second door... Resist it, reject it, and defend your existing position. If you've ever been online, you will notice, and yeah, you don't have to go too far to see this, there are thousands of people that have set up their entire lives and ministries dedicated to pulling down other people. Right? Ostensibly, it's about defending the truth. In reality, it's about attacking anyone who thinks differently. Right? And there's thousands of them. And you can very, you can very sit quickly see how it works because we move from, you know, I can't believe this book for a second, uh, and there's no rational, intellectual, theological debate there. It's just 
I, this, this guy's from Satan and, you know, he wears two left shoes or whatever it happens to be. Anything to undermine the credibility of these people. And I thought, you know what? There are just so many people out there that want to defend scripture. But there are so few who want to explore the kingdom. And I just think, like I said to you last week about mushroom eating, that wasn't just a random point. I do like mushrooms, but I wanted to say, remember someone eats the first mushroom? And in the church, we need people who are prepared to go places that no one else has been prepared to go. Peter was one of those guys. If you remember Acts 8 as well, Philip was one of those guys. All of this stuff that we take as normal now was not normal at one point. You with me? It's because someone stepped out Someone moved out and crossed the boundaries. We don't want to be a church of people who feel like they need to defend God and to defend a particular view of God. God's big enough to look after himself. We need to be a church of people who are prepared to explore, who are prepared to stand in front of door three and go, let's see where this takes us. Because this kingdom that Jesus is building is so much bigger and better than we've ever been led to imagine and currently we're living in one very small corner of it and calling it the entire universe. Are you with me? All right. That'll do for now. I'm going to stop. Before I get into real trouble. Um, No, I'm joking. I'm joking. Just my deeply, deeply held insecurities coming up. Um, We're going to take communion now. And again, this... You know, this is a great opportunity for us to just gather around this table that represents something that is immutable and unchanging, the the never-ending, never-changing love of Jesus for us, of his atoning sacrifice, of his life in us through this sacrifice that he made, yes? And for the blood and the, the body that was broken and shed, not just for us, but for the healing of all of creation. We get to celebrate this together. Amen. So everyone's invited. There's some tables at the sides and at the back. Go in your own time. Take it individually. Take it together. Pray. Whatever. We'll get the team back up. Thank you for your time.